This is an Odyssey original. This is KDX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Chris Seaton, sitting in today for Charles Feldman. We've got a new House Speaker. Yeah, new Speaker of the House. Republicans finally, finally coming together, electing Louisiana's Mike Johnson. We'll go in-depth on, on who he is and why Republicans picked him. Look at me, Chris. I'm jumping at the bit. <laughs> I'm ready to get the show. I want to get it going now. <laughs> Governor Newsom met with a major world leader today. We go in-depth into what they talked about. Also, quirky rituals. Most of the, us do them, maybe without even realizing it. We'll look at a whether they are good to keep doing. Jumping in, maybe that's one of your quirky cor- might be one of the, rituals. yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> uh, we start, though, with the selection of the new Speaker of the House, finally. Eric Wasson, Bloomberg's congressional reporter. He's at the Capitol right now. Eric, thanks for taking some time for us today. Thanks so much for having me. You know, the, the Trump backers seem dug in, the moderates as well on the Republican side. This vote really went a lot smoother than the previous three. Why? I know. It was almost a unanimous, in fact. In fact, it was unanimous. There's no one opposing uh, Republican Mike Johnson on the, uh, on the Republican side. Uh, you know, I think Mike Johnson, he is a, first of all, he's a very nice guy. And I think having no enemies in this town, this, this um, you know, fight was very personal. There were a lot of grudges, a lot of history between the members. And they found someone who's sort of a fresh face who doesn't have that same history. He's very conservative, very similar in policies to Jim Jordan, one of the conservatives who lost uh, the nomination. Uh, but he just doesn't have the same sort of personal history due to he's not a combative person like Jordan has been. But what is this? Uh, does this bode well for the House uh, getting along with President Biden uh, going forward? Because Kevin McCarthy arguably uh, tried to play both sides of the middle, did not succeed. He made too many promises to the far right wing of the caucus. Uh, and then he got caught actually uh, uh, working with President Biden on that uh, continuing resolution. And that that was the death knell. So with that in mind, are they going to look at Mike Johnson's like, don't you make the mistake that Kevin McCarthy did? You do nothing to help the Democrats and the president. We are asking you exactly the right question. I got a story out today on this. Johnson does have a, a, a plan to sort of avert this shutdown that's looming on November 18th when current funding expires. He says, you know, kick the can down to January 15th or April 15th and get all those regular 12 spending bills done and, you know, work them out with the Senate. But I already started talking to some conservatives here in the House. And they're saying they want their priorities attached to the stopgap. This is the same exact problem that bedeviled McCarthy in September. You know, the idea of attaching a 30 percent sudden cut to spending to that must-pass bill, uh, you know, that the Democrats in, in the White House won't accept. This really does raise the specter of a government shutdown. Eric, does the one person can vote you out rule, the rule that uh, ended the speakership for uh, Kevin McCarthy, does that rule apply to Mike Johnson? Yeah, the, the rule is still in place, and I think people came to accept that it's going to be in place. You know, if, if, if Mike Johnson turned out to be far too conservative, far too into sort of a shutdown uh, mentality and, and confrontation, perhaps the moderates would, would take that up. Uh, that's not been changed. Uh, I don't expect it to be changed until uh, or whenever Democrats take over the, the House of Representatives when they would try to revert it to the way it was under Pelosi, where it can't be brought so easily. Uh, Mike Johnson voted against certifying the 2020 election. He was uh, arguably one of the architects behind the uh, scheme to kind of use the House to overturn uh, the election of President Biden. Uh, What does that mean going forward in uh, 2024 if Mike Johnson is still the Speaker of the House? And who knows at this point? Uh, does Does he not certify an election if Biden wins in 2024? 
You know, he made he's a constitutional lawyer. He made some arguments that uh, Democrats and most people believe are legally spurious. He argued that, uh, you know, crafted that legal brief and was rejected by the courts. But he really didn't, as far as we know, uh, conspire with, uh, you know, any of the mob on January 6th. So I think there, there's sort of a, a limit, you know, that remains to be seen. Certainly it's a possibility. Uh, but, you know, he's he was not the vice president. He wouldn't have that uh, you know, sort of pivotal role that Mike Pence essentially had to, to overturn the election. So I think, you know, uh, he's been dodging questions on this. We've been asking him both yesterday and today. He's dodging it. Um, you know, it remains to be seen, but certainly it won him Trump's loyalty. And that turned out to be pivotal because Trump was able to quash Tom Emmer of Minnesota's candidacy a day ago uh, when he was the nominee over uh, Emmer's vote to certify the election. Uh, and then he, he uh, Trump put his uh, weight behind uh, Johnson earlier today. All right, Eric Watson, thank you so much. Uh, Bloomberg's congressional reporter at the Capitol right now. With us now is Kevin Kosar, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's an expert on Congress. Kevin, thank you for taking some time for us today. First of all, wh- why, in your opinion, did Republicans finally settle on very not very well-known Mike Johnson rather than a, a Tom Emmer or a Jim Jordan? Well, I think in part it was because he was not particularly well-known. Uh, he's known well within the chamber itself. Uh, He seems to get along pretty well with others, but he's not a polarizing figure like Mr. Jordan. He's also extraordinarily conservative, um, which means that the kind of faction of the party, House Freedom Caucus and those who are close to it, uh, who have shot down Mr. Emmer uh, and Mr. McCarthy, they were happy with him. Um, And I think those factors combined with just general exhaustion. Um, coming back and doing these votes again and again and again is tiresome. I think they were tiring of the drama. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I wonder if uh, Mike Johnson had been put forward, say, a couple of candidates ago, if he would have won then. Or did Mike Johnson just win now because Republicans are like, whatever, give us Pol Pot, we'll vote for him, we're done with this. Where you know <laughs> they, they were getting embarrassed by how long this was taking. Or did Mike Johnson get elected Speaker of the House because he was really the answer to their prayers? Yeah, I mean, I think the contrast between uh, his candidacy and Emmer's is, uh, is instructive. I'm sure Republicans were just as tired uh, in the last couple of days as they were today. Um, but Nonetheless, Emmer went down in flames, not least because of drawing fl- fire from Mr. Trump, but also because he had taken certain votes in the past that were upsetting to the right part of the Republican uh, conference. And yeah, so he was kind of the right guy at the right time. Can this vote be seen as a victory for uh, Matt Gates? Uh, I think it can. I think it can. Uh, you know, you've already mentioned on the program that he was involved with the um, effort uh, back on January 6th to um, see if the uh, Biden presidency could be delayed or possibly overturned. Um, he's, you know, Christian conservative Southerner. Um, you look at the issues he's involved in. He's on Judiciary Committee, doing lots of investigations, armed services, military. He kind of fits the profile. So at the risk of appearing lazy, I'm going to ask you the question that I asked our our last guest and see if we get your take on it, if it's different. 
since he did vote against, you know, certifying the 2020 election, was one of the architects of an idea that uh, that the election of Joe Biden could be overturned. Uh, that did not pan out in the courts, of course. Uh, but he seemed to have followed on with that idea, uh, agreeing with Donald Trump that the election had been stolen and rigged, etc. Does that mean that if Joe Biden wins in 2024 against, let's say, Donald Trump, and Donald Trump once again cries that it was stolen and rigged, does he block uh, the certification in the House? Uh, I don't think so. I'd bet against it. Um, you know, for one, the speaker is not empowered on that day to preside over the chamber. It's the vice president. Uh, for another, the uh, Electoral Count Act, the 100-plus-year-old law that kind of governs how the process works, uh, Congress fixed that. They updated the language. They got rid of a lot of the ambiguities in it. And it's going to be a lot harder for somebody to try to read that law in a way that enables them to say, oh, we don't have to count these electoral slates from the from the uh, the states. And, you know, having since MAGA Nation really kind of failed to make their case in court or anywhere else in a way that was particularly convincing about election theft uh, to the rest of the nation, trying to make that case again, it could be the old, uh, you know. Uh, boy who cried wolf sort of problem. Kevin, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot with this question, but let me ask you, did the Democrats play this vote right, this process? Should they have perhaps pushed harder to help moderate Republicans get a moderate candidate over the over the line? Uh, very good question. Uh, I wonder if any of them are rethinking their decision to participate in the vote to remove Mr. McCarthy. Uh, I would say Mr. McCarthy is uh, more flexible uh, on terms of his policy uh, prescriptions than perhaps uh, the new speaker, um, but maybe not. Um, some Democrats said Mr. McCarthy was a bit too flexible and they you know, thought he was getting promising them one thing and then he'd turn around and do another thing. Um, and this guy probably is going to be a lot more clear about what's acceptable and what's not. Hard to say. You got continuing resolutions still ahead. And very quickly, uh, our, our final question before we run out of time. Uh, if um, Mike Johnson commits the sin of actually making a deal with President Biden, which is what uh, got Kevin McCarthy ousted, uh, does he get ousted? Probably. Yeah. Unless he has a full <laughs> blessing of the caucus. You didn't even have to think about that for very long. Right. Yeah. No, he can't do anything at the behest of his caucus. I think it's much more likely that we're going to end up with a government shutdown just because the position staked out by the House on the spending bills is going to be very different from what's staked out by the Senate to say nothing of what Mr. Biden would tolerate. All right. Thanks so much. Kevin Kosar, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, expert on Congress. Coming up a little later in the show, uh, tying your shoes a certain way, or maybe perhaps always wearing your favorite team's jersey on game day might seem strange to others, but some experts say these these little rituals, rituals we, we all have them, might just be a good thing. We'll, we'll explain. Right now, there, there are uh, multiple reports that the U.S. has been pushing Israel to delay its ground invasion of Gaza as work is being done to free the hostages. U.S. officials also reportedly concerned the ground invasion may not go as Israel hopes. Dan Blakely is a Special Ops Army Ranger veteran and co-author of the book, The 20-Year War, which details the global war on terror. Thanks so much for joining us today. Of course. Thank you for having me. So did the U.S. request of Israel to hold off on the ground invasion while they worked to free the hostages, or was that something left unspoken? Uh, I 
I think there's a multitude of reasons why the U.S. is probably, um, I won't say directly requested, but has urged caution for uh, Israel to have a ground invasion into uh, Gaza. And um, really, it, it comes down to the military advantage. Um, you know, there's there's multiple reasons why you would want to immediately invade, you know, catch a terrorist organization on their heels and, um, you know, hopefully sweep through. And, and it seems like an easy thing to do, bring in a, a, a large military force, take out a terrorist organization, go home happy to your, your, your family and loved ones. But that's not reality. That's not the reality of war. Um, pushing in a military force into a densely populated area that is Gaza is going to have significant ramifications for the civilians that are present during that uh, that force. Um, and so I think the U.S. is just urging caution to say that there needs to be a strategic initiative, an idea of how you're going to go through and clear through that densely populated, populated area while minimizing civilian casualties. Dan, there must be an awful lot going on behind the scenes that we don't know about, we can't know about as civilians. Uh, from your background, what is likely happening behind the scenes right now uh, that we don't know, that, that part of the effort to try and get the hostages out? As far as the hostages, I mean, the, the negotiating uh, uh, process is, is very interesting because you have uh, regional actors that are obviously involved that uh, the U.S. is probably having some level of influence in, you know, Qatar and uh, uh, Egypt and, and obviously Israel and uh, uh, some other uh, local actors are, are trying to get involved um, to try and get as many hostages released as possible. Uh, obviously, Hamas is, is dragging their feet on the process. They're doing it for probably a multitude of reasons, um, you know, readying their uh, their troops, their, their terrorist fighters, um, probably trying to dig in because they know that this, this uh, active assault into Gaza is likely to happen. Um, but the, the conversations still need to, need to be had to try and get, uh, hostages rescued. And there's, you know, the, the U S has, uh, released some of their, um, special mission units to go advise and, and help direct on how to, um, how to go and rescue the hostages if needed. You know, obviously there's a multitude of contingency plans in place. Um, but it's, it's a lot building to really this pinnacle effort that's going to happen. Either the hostages will be released or Israel will go in and invade, and hopefully at the same time, uh, there will be an effort uh, by probably Israeli troops in, in conjunction with some of their partner forces, including the United States, to go in and, and rescue as many hostages as possible. Well, I can't help but wonder, Dan, that you mean, much has been made about the Americans asking the Israelis to hold off while they try to get the hostages out, but I think a lot of people probably just wonder, you know, in the big scheme of things, without boots on the ground, with some people maybe you know, some undercover people working uh, inside Gaza right now. How in the world can they make any progress? I mean, I, I'm, I'm just not sure how that function would work. Yeah, it's it's a lot. Um, you know, the U.S. has unfortunately gone through its own experience in, uh, uh, you know, either being the, the, uh, the force that's going in to eradicate terrorism or the force that's going in to take over uh, and remove uh, a power. And I, I talk about, you know, eradicate a terrorist force going into Afghanistan, removing a, a, a local power being in Iraq and removing uh, the Iraqi military. 
Dan, and, very, uh, very quickly, let me interject here before we run out of time. Uh, we said in the intro that uh, some officials in the U.S. are concerned that a ground invasion might not go the way Israel wants it to. Is part of that concern based on the fact that, yeah, we have had this delay to try to work on getting some hostages out, but is that delay going to make a ground invasion for Israel harder? It's going to be difficult no matter what. I don't think it's going to make it harder. It's just going to make it different. And, um, and what are the concerns that officials have? really just maintaining that they they follow the the laws of armed conflict and the international humanitarian law really reducing the civilian casualty rate and also making sure that the troops are prepared for that invasion that they know how to clear the urban environment and occupy uh when that clearance is 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 complete all right dan blakely thank you so much special ops army ranger veteran also co-author of a book called the 20-year war it details the global war on terror you're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer. I'm Chris Seedens. Governor Newsom is in China, had a surprise meeting with China's leader, Xi Jinping. The governor is visiting China on a tour to push for climate cooperation, but could he also be helping to smooth relations, rough relations between the U.S. and China? Uh, Clayton Duby, director of USC's U.S.-China Institute, joins us now to talk more about this. Clayton, thank you for taking some time for us today. Happy to be with you. Was it really a surprise that Governor Newsom got a chance to meet with Xi in person, sit down and, and talk? I suspect that it was always a possibility and that Newsom may have made the request, but it's not the sort of thing that they would necessarily announce in advance, uh, given how sticky the relationship is. Yeah, tensions are high between the U.S. and China right now. Does this kind of help smooth the way between the two countries, kind of a kind of like a backdoor way? It doesn't hurt. It's not likely to change much in substance. But one of the things that's important here is that they two are talking with each other as opposed to about each other. And the only way we're going to succeed in addressing the many things that divide the United States and China is if we get together and we actually hammer away at some of these hard problems. Yeah, Clayton, we're at one state in, in a massive country, uh, but we do have a very large economy, one of the largest in the world. Tell us about the importance of California's relationship with China. Uh, well, you made an excellent point about the size of the California economy. We're certainly, I think, top top seven, uh, you know, in terms of the, if we were an independent country. Uh, but California is also... Uh, last year, the number two exporter to China. And the China market is very important for the California economy. And so, for example, California uh, last year, just in terms of goods, exported uh, more almost $18 billion worth of items. Now, services is also a California strength. And services have been down a little bit because travel is so far down. And we often forget that included in the services total are services such as education, where Chinese students come to the United States, and where Chinese tourists come to the United States. And California is the number one destination. Because there are so few flights between the United States and China, tourism is much lower than it historically has been. Pre-pandemic, we were looking on an average day of 6,000 Chinese coming to America. On an average day, uh, because of the pandemic, it's it, it dropped off entirely, and the slow return of flights has meant that the number of Chinese flowing to the United States is still reduced. 
So here we have a governor of a state uh, meeting with the leader of a country. And uh, while Governor Newsom is the first one to tell you, I'm not running for president, technically he's correct, (laughs) but he certainly does look like he's running for president or some other higher office down the road and certainly didn't make this trip and meet with the leader of China without the uh, without the uh, approval of President Biden. So is this a signal that uh, Governor Newsom is stepping onto the world stage as kind of a prelude to uh, some office he's he's running for that he's not really running for, but he is really running for? (laughs) Well, I don't know. uh, You know, we have to wait and see whether or not he ends up as a presidential candidate. But the governor of California is a major world leader because our economy is so big, because of our disproportionate weight in terms of pop culture, uh, because we have been on the cutting edge uh, in science and technology. California matters. And so uh, Governor Governor Newsom's predecessors, Schwarzenegger and Brown, both traveled frequently to China and both forged deals in China. As mayor of San Francisco, uh, Newsom traveled to Shanghai, the sister city, uh, San Francisco's sister city. And so he's been to China. He's been uh, interacting with these officials uh, for quite some time. Uh, Whether or not that you know, helps his political portfolio going forward uh, is anybody's guess. But it's certainly important for California that the governor and that uh, the governor forge and improve ties in China, particularly as it, uh, you know, as it addresses climate change. Uh, And here we already have received investment from China on that, uh, you know, Los Angeles County is the headquarters for BYD, which is the number one producer of uh, electric vehicles in the world and produces electric buses up in Lancaster. And so we need these ties, uh, both as a market and as a potential uh, source of Chinese investment in these important technologies. Clayton, was there any chance that human rights was discussed, or would that have been an absolute non-starter to get a meeting with Xi? Well, I'm sure if uh, Newsom's people, his representatives, had said, we want to come and talk about the situation in Xinjiang, we want to talk about repression in Hong Kong, that this meeting would not have happened. Uh, at the same time, I am fairly certain that Governor Newsom brought these subjects up, uh, perhaps behind closed doors with these Chinese leaders to indicate that these issues do matter uh, to Californians. We are not just an economy, we're a society, and uh, we believe in the dignity of individuals. And so this is an important consideration. But we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We have to be able to deal with Uh, the China that is, as well as trying to encourage China to reconsider uh, some of the policies, some of the repressive policies that it it has towards Mm -hmm. its own people. All right. Clayton Doobie, uh, director of the USC U.S.-China Institute. Thank you. Do you ever find yourself doing a routine, a small ritual over and over again? Perhaps perhaps you wear the same shirt on a certain day, or maybe uh, you're or maybe you're like Rob Archer, always pointing. Um, maybe you comb your hair a certain way with a certain comb. 
Well, it turns out those little rituals, however odd they might seem, might be just good for your mental health. That's sometimes hard to imagine. We're going to find out. Uh, Dr. Mo Gelbart, Director of Behavioral Health at Torrance Memorial Medical Center. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So what are some of these odd little rituals? Because, you know, when I think off the bat, I can't think of anything I do, but I'm sure I do. So oh, give us some, do. Give us yeah. some examples. Well, things like, uh, we actually all probably grew up with some of them. Things like Tuesday night is spaghetti night or something, or uh, let's go visit grandma every Sunday, you know, at her, at her home, or let's go to the library on Thursday nights, or let's have such and such dinner uh, you know, the family dinners two or three times a week or any particular night. So those are all the kind of rituals we work actually uh, recommend quite strongly to people uh, to actually raise their well-being and mental health. So it sounds like they could be a ritual. You talk about going to somebody's place on a certain night at a certain day. That all all the way down to something maybe as trivial as, as this, you know, using a certain comb. Or I know when I'm walking towards my car, when I, I'm leaving my condo to go to work, I walk down some stairs and I always glance up at, it, at the same step basically every day just before I get into the parking garage. A little ritual like that. So big things to small things. Correct. Now, rituals provide a certain degree of certainty and a certain degree of predictability. And they're so important in a world where, you know, much of what we have is not in our control and much of what we have feels chaotic. So whatever it is we can grab on that gives us a sense of mastery uh, actually reduces anxiety, reduces stress, and in many ways improves our well-being. And just one last thing, you know, they, they may seem to someone else as trivial or ridiculous, but to that person who decides to plan that in their life, they're really important. But what about when this odd little ritual gets out of control? I'm talking about people who have uh, that condition where they have to do something multiple times, like turn the light on and off six times, and they cannot function if they don't do that. Is that when it gets out of control, or is that still maybe good for them to do? No, I, you're describing something what we call obsessive compulsive disorder, which is very different, very different from a ritual. That is, they're compelled in their mind to continue to do something over and over. And it, when it interferes with their ability to function day to day, in other words, if you want to get to work, but you have to keep going back and checking the garage, and then you head off to work and you come back and forth and back and forth, that's really more of an obsessive compulsive disorder than it is a ritual. So I take it then when it comes to just strictly rituals, there's nothing detrimental, nothing dangerous about rituals then? Well, you know, I, I do work with parents. And one of the uh, things I, I, I talk about is in lectures is, is about setting rituals. But I make sure that we're not talking about things like satanic rituals. But I mean, that's only joking. Of course, there's nothing there's nothing dangerous about the kind of rituals we're describing here. Yeah, let's uh, get into uh, satanic rituals. Let's go ahead yeah, right. and talk about that. That'll be, that'll it, be fun. It relieves my anxiety, sir. <laughs> um, you know, someone told me once that when they put on their shoes, they put on sock, shoe, sock, shoe. And I thought, that's crazy. So the fact that I put on sock, sock, shoe, shoe, but it's always left one first, right one second. I mean, always. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that I always, I never put right one on first, left one. Is that, does that count as one of those little odd little rituals you can do that kind of helps calm your anxiety? Does that give me a sense of control over my surroundings? Yes. And again, I would not call it odd. 
uh, I think it's really important. That's something that provides a sense, as I said, of mastery, of control for you. And you you always know the outcome. It's something you, you can predict pretty easily. Uh, when you are doing it in any different order, you may feel like something's uh, not working right, not, not exactly correct, and you begin to feel a little anxiety. Now, you're not going to develop any great amount of anxiety about putting your shoes on in a different order, but it's just a matter of of just knowing that, as I said, the word mastery, that you have some ability to put some controls in your life. And there are things that you learn that you can depend on and feel like you can always, uh, uh, you know, w- whenever you get there, you know what it's going to turn out like. Yeah, there was a famous scene from uh, from uh, All in the Family where Meathead was just driving Archie crazy because uh, he was putting on left sock, left shoe, right sock, right so- shoe. Yeah, that's just insane. It, I'm sorry. It was crazy. It uh, was people would do need to be locked up. Uh, Dr. Galbart, uh, maybe before we wrap things up, uh, is there one, could you think of one particular quirk that, that you've heard about that is really out of the ordinary? Hmm. You know, I was really, nothing really comes to mind only because as I thought of about our discussion that I was thinking really of the benefit of this mm-hmm. uh, ritualistic. Well, well, what's an odd ritual that you have? Yeah. I wouldn't call it odd. You know, I, I, I get up at a certain time every morning because I, I pack my, my gym bag the night before because I know then that way I'll, I'll get up and be able to, you know, at a certain time and get to the gym and so on. So I wouldn't call that, you know, I don't call most rituals as Odd. I think if it doesn't, there's two two criteria. One on the negative side, if it does not negatively impact your day-to-day activity, then I don't believe it. Then it's helpful rather than odd. And again, the flip side of that, if it assists in your day-to-day in, in your activities of living, then it's helpful. You know, research. Just to throw out one other quick quick thing. You know, research shows, for example, that families that have the ritual of sitting down and eating dinner one or two times a week together, their teenage children have less, uh, statistically less, uh, not opportunity, but statistically less uh, examples of drug use and and smoking and so on. So just the ritual of being together as a family provides a certain comfort and strength. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mo Gelbart. Uh, one of my rituals is I'm I'm always ending the show. Uh, <laughs> thanks for joining us, Director of Behavioral Health at Torrance Memorial Medical Center. That's going to do it for KNX in depth today. We'll do it again tomorrow at 1 p.m.